Well, good morning. It is good to be with you today. If you're visiting with us, we are glad you're here as we worship Christ and hear His Word. And we've been going through the Psalms uh, for a couple weeks in the summer as we've uh, taken a short break from the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we're going to be in Psalm 19. Let's go ahead and turn there. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And as you turn there, consider a question. How do you know what's true? Specifically about God and about yourself. How do you know what's true about God and about yourself? Ultimately, everybody looks to some kind of authority to reveal to them what's true about God and about themselves. For example, some look to their own heart to find out who they are. They, they say, well, what, is, what does my heart say I am? What does my heart say about who God is? And they treat that as their authority. Um, others look to science, for example. And science is good, but uh, some people look to science and say, well, science can't prove God's existence. Uh, so that's what science tells me about God, and then science tells me that we're all just meat machines, right? Uh, still others look to society and popular opinion for information about God and themselves. Whatever's popular, whatever everybody else believes, well, that's probably what's true. And that's what I should believe, too. Now, here's the problem, though. I just listed three possible authorities that people look to for revelation of truth about themselves and about God, but how do you know which one is right? What if society says one thing and science says another? What if your heart says one thing and society says another? How, how do you know which one to believe? How do you know which one is true? Where can we find answers about God and about ourselves? Well, fortunately for us, God is not a hidden, silent God. Psalm 19, our text for this morning, uh, describes for us how God has revealed himself in two primary sources. He's revealed himself through the book of Scripture, right, this we call the Bible, special revelation. And he's revealed himself through creation. Uh, this is what we might call the book of nature or general revelation. So while many people wrestle with uh, how to know truth about God and they wonder, where can I go? Psalm 19 tells us that the book of nature and the book of Scripture together are sufficient, true, and trustworthy to learn about God and ourselves. Ultimately, uh, Psalm 19 proclaims to us the goodness of God's revelation of himself in these two books. And it also describes for us the kind of response that we should have to his revelation. Let's read Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. 
Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our God and our King, we have just read in our text for this morning about the goodness of your revelation. About the goodness of the very book that we come to hear from this morning. Lord, your word as it's written down in the pages of our Bible is a supernatural text. For Lord, you have chosen to use these words in a unique way in our hearts and in our lives. And Father, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, that it would indeed have this effect in us, that it would revive our souls, that it would make us wise, that it would rejoice our heart and enlighten our eyes. Lord, that you would teach us the right way to go according to your word. And Father, as we consider Psalm 19, we pray that you would elicit a response to your revelation today. That though, Lord, we see many theological truths in this psalm, Lord, none of that really matters unless it helps us to live a life pleasing to you through Christ our Lord. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and apply the Word of God to us today. Help me to uh, be helpful and clear in preaching today. Lord, that your Word would go forth and that you would be honored and glorified. In your name we pray, amen. There are three main uh, points, three main sections in this text this morning. First, in verses 1 through 6, we see God's revelation in nature. God's revelation in nature. And uh, verses 7 through 11, we see God's revelation in Scripture. And then finally, in verses 12 through 14, we see David's response to revelation. Uh, we, we do read at the very beginning of this psalm, this is a psalm of David. This is a psalm of David. In Hebrew, that's actually verse 1. We also see that this is a psalm not just for individual use, but for all of God's people to use together in, in public corporate worship. This is uh, to the choir master. This is uh, addressed so that it might be used in the public worship of Israel. Of course, God's revelation is certainly for individuals, but it is also something for all people, especially the people of God. And this psalm begins with a beautiful statement, a beautiful statement. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims His handiwork. Now, if you've lived in northern Nevada for much time at all, this verse may come to mind when you see the amazing sunsets that we have here. Now, David tells us that the heavens, the sky, really the, the, the entire created realm that we gaze up and around into, proclaims and declares the glory of God and the works of his hands. Now, David specifically names uh, the sky here in the heavens, uh, and, and he tells us that they reveal things about God that they actually tell us things about God. The creation is not neutral when it comes to God, but God has actually imbued creation. He has, he has infused it and created it with the ability and the purpose of bearing witness to Him. God has made the creation in such a way that it tells you and me things about Him. 
And notice the verbs that David uses here. He doesn't say the creation whispers things about God that we have to listen really, really closely to. No, the creation is not reluctant to make things known about its creator, is it? Uh, it, it loudly, clearly, explicitly proclaims and declares, let everybody hear and see about God. Now, theologians often call this general revelation. The things about God that creation makes known, uh, we call general revelation. And that's because it reveals general things about God, generally to all people. General things about God, generally to all people. A general revelation, the things that creation tells us about God, does not require any kind of spiritual help. You can be, you can be a pagan living in the middle of a, uh, you know, a desert island or something, and you can, without the Holy Spirit, you can come to conclusions about God from the creation. You can see things that are true about God. Even, even pagans are able to see this. And David lists two major categories that general revelation makes known about God, his attributes and his works. Uh, creation tells us about some of God's attributes and some of his works. In verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, David says. Creation reveals God's attributes. That's what his glory refers to, who he is, his power, his authority, his honor, his brilliant majesty. And Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 1. Turn over there briefly with me, Romans chapter 1. Look at verses 19 through 20 briefly. Romans chapter 1, 19 through 20. We read there, For what can be known about God is plain to them, meaning all humanity. For what can be known about God is plain to humanity because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Uh, David and Paul are saying the same thing here, which shouldn't surprise us since God is the author of both Romans and the Psalms. They're both saying the same thing here, that creation reveals certain invisible attributes of God. Creation actually makes known to us things about God, specifically his eternal nature, his power, and his divinity. Now, the creation reveals God's eternality because everything that exists has to have a beginning. Everything that exists has to have a beginning. It has to have a first cause. And that first cause, that creator, can't have a creator. Can't have a first cause. It, it'll always go back to one ultimate cause. And of course, that is God, he has no beginning. And we can see that in creation. He's eternal. The creation reveals God's power. Consider the greatness of the mountains. We live next to the Sierra Nevadas. That's a magnificent mountain range, and yet even that is small compared to the Himalayas. We see God's power revealed in the ocean, the massive size and scope of it. And yet God is the master and creator of it all. He has power over the most powerful things in our world. It reveals his power. It reveals his divinity. Since God is the creator of all things, he cannot be created himself, which means he can't be made of physical matter like you and me. He can't be made of something that needs to be created. Instead, he must be a divine spirit, the greatest possible being. It reveals his divinity. The created world then, the heavens, the earth, the sea, all reveal the glory of God. 
and they testify loudly and clearly to some of his attributes. Again, even, even pagan philosophers in history, like Aristotle, they're, they're able to perceive the existence and some attributes of God from the creation. Now, did they get the whole picture? Of course not. But could they get one or two things right from the world around us? Yes, they could. Uh, indigenous peoples all throughout the world perceive the existence of a creator, right? and, and, and maybe some of the attributes of that creator. And of course, we read in Romans that because of sin, those truths that we may be able to see from creation get a little twisted around and turned into idolatry. But nonetheless, you don't have to have a Bible to know God exists. He reveals that in creation. And in fact, uh, atheists are actually the tiny minority in the history of the entire world. Most of humanity, for all of humanity's existence, has believed that there is some kind of creator God out there. Where do they learn that? It's from the creation. It's from the creation. Humanity's always believed there's some kind of being like that. So creation reveals some, some attributes of God. Creation also proclaims God's handiwork. Creation doesn't just tell us about God's attributes, but as we read in verse 1, it proclaims his handiwork, some of his works too. And as we look at creation, we can be amazed at the work of God's hands, right? We, we can see the complexity of God's work when we consider a human body. The complexity of an eye or of a brain or how all of the parts of the human body work together. I mean, it is the most complicated machine ever known. You are, right, so to speak, right? You are the most complicated organism that has ever existed. An incredible creation. We see the greatness of God's work. Again, look at the sun. That's a small star compared to some of the others out there in our universe. We see the wisdom of God's work. How even though sin has affected the world from the fall, God still designed a good world. We can still see glimpses of that. We still see glimpses of his wisdom in a balanced ecosystem that we haven't managed to mess up too bad yet. And we see the beauty of God's work in the world around us, don't we? If we just stop for a moment and look around us, we see the, the color of the flowers he has made, which surpass any kind of pigment you and I could mix up. You hold a leaf up to the sun and you see how beautiful and intricate its patterns are, how radiant and warm the sunlight is, how the mist rises up off a river early in the morning, how, how cute little baby animals are, right? the smell of clear mountain air, the variety of human appearance. We can see the beauty of his work in what he's made. And in fact, the work of God revealed in creation was actually the basis for the early scientific method. Do you know that? Uh, Sir Francis Bacon, a fundamental pioneer who's got an awesome name uh, in Western science, he believed that God had given people, humanity, the, the ability to discover things about God's work in creation. And that reality drove much of early scientific thought and discovery. This is God's world. Let's discover all the wonderful things in it. And as we've learned more about our world since that time, as science has progressed, we have even more to praise God for as we see how great the universe is. Again, how complex human bodies are, all these different things. So creation then reveals limited but true things about God and his works. And as we see in the next verses, uh, this revelation is universal. It is general. It's universal. As we look down to verse 2, we, we see that day and night pour out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Right Again, this speaks to the revelatory nature 
of nature. They are telling us things about God. They are revealing things we can know about the Creator. And as we look down to verses 3 and 4, uh, we essentially see the same thing restated in, in a poetic way. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, there's nothing that creation can testify to us about God that we suddenly or, or somehow will miss. All the things that creation says are easy to hear. All the things creation reveals about God are easy to see. And there's nothing that gets dropped. You know, there's no words that get missed. As we see in verse 4, their voice, their, their proclamation of God and His glory and His handiwork goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Again, this speaks to the reality that there is no place on earth where creation doesn't testify to God's glory or His handiwork. There's not some hidden corner of the desert where that's, that's just not there, where you can't learn anything about God. Across the entire world that God has made, from one edge of the universe to the other, the voice of creation testifies to the glory and the power and the handiwork of God. And again, this is alluded to in Romans 1, 18 through 19, where again, Paul points out that because all of humanity, every single person with senses that work, because they are exposed to the general revelation of God in creation, nobody can justifiably give an excuse that they didn't know God existed. Nobody can stand before God on judgment day and go, you know what, I just didn't really see any evidence for you, and I, I don't know how I missed it. Uh, Paul, David, the entire uh, testimony of Scripture is that, no, it's that obvious that you are without excuse. You can't say, well, I don't believe God exists. You have no, you have no basis for saying that because the evidence for his existence is all around you. And in fact, you yourself are an evidence for his existence. Uh, the extent of creation's witness is all over the earth. Every people, nation, tribe, and tongue has this general revelation. And David describes how the sun is a great example, kind of using a specific aspect of revelation here in, in, in creation. In the end of verse 4 through verse 6, he, he describes the sun here. He says, in the heavens, God has sent a tent for the sun. Now, it's important as we read this to remember that David is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he is also speaking in natural ancient Hebrew language, culture, and scientific knowledge, right? The Holy Spirit's not going to give David 21st century astro astronomical knowledge here, right? Uh, so the ancient Hebrews, for example, did not know the sun was a giant ball of gas in the sky light years away. Right? They didn't know that. That hadn't been discovered yet. They didn't know about orbit. Um, these things hadn't really been discovered yet. So David is writing truth here, but we would understand this not to be literal scientific language describing the course of the sun in the sky, but poetic figurative language. Uh, David describes how God has made a tent for the sun, how he's established the dwelling place of the sun in the sky in its rising and in its setting. How the sun emerges like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, bright and full excited to go meet its bride. And every day, the sun travels from the east to the west, not weakening in its light or its heat, not getting exhausted, but like a joyful, strong man completing its course with joy, with vigor, with energy. And as we look at the sun, for example, we, we see that God has fixed the order of creation. He has established a tent for it. He has established its course. He sustains creation. And consider what that tells us about God. 
There's nothing hidden from the heat of the sun. There's no variation in the sun's course, in its rising and in its setting. And if the sun is that faithful, how much more faithful is its creator? If the sun has as much reach over our earth, how much more the reach of the creator? The sun has that much energy, joy, heat, power, how much more its creator? Even the sun testifies to God. And so we see in these first six verses of Psalm 19 a rich explanation of how creation testifies to God. About how there are some things we can learn about God from the world that he has made. It's general revelation. And David seems to describe general revelation as a good thing, doesn't he? He says, this is wonderful, all these, all these truths about God and creation. But the question is, is general revelation enough? Is it sufficient? Do we really need our, our, our Bible? Well, here's the thing, right? As great as general revelation is, as great as the things we can learn about God from creation uh, may be, that revelation cannot save. That revelation cannot save. You cannot come to a uh, reconciled, saving relationship with the God of the universe just through what you see in the world he's made. He hasn't designed it to do that. He hasn't designed creation to give you the information you need to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. As the 1689 Baptist Confession uh, tells us, the works of confession, uh, creation and providence, when assisted only by the light of nature, do not reveal Christ or grace through him, even in a general or obscure way. So the creation doesn't tell us about Christ the Savior. Much less are those without the revelation of him and the promise of the gospel enabled to attain saving faith or repentance by seeing these works of God. In other words, you can't come to saving faith and repentance just by looking at the creation. That's not what God has designed it to do. That's not the message he has given it to us to communicate. So we need something more. We need something more. General revelation is not sufficient for what you and I need for life, godliness, salvation, and the knowledge of God. We need another book. And God has given it to us, the book of Scripture. And that's where we go in verses 7 through 11. The book of Scripture, the revelation of Scripture. As we look at verse 7, there's a bit of a transition here, isn't there? David moves from speaking about creation to speaking about the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, and, and so forth. And these are really all synonyms here for God's explicitly given revelation in Scripture, which again we call special revelation because it reveals specific things about God to specific people. Right? It is, is simply a fact that not everyone in history has read the Bible or had access to a Bible like they do the creation. And so this kind of revelation is different. It is, uh, quote-unquote, special. And as we'll see in a minute, this kind of revelation is special because it reveals things about God that can only be known here and accomplishes things in your life and my life that can only be done through this book as the Spirit works. As, again, the 1689 Confession is helpful. It says, A whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. And that means all you need for your Christian life is right here. 
It's right here. Whether that be the beginning of your Christian life and salvation, uh, the continuing of your Christian life and sanctification, and the end of your Christian life as you enter into glory, all you need is here. In the book you hold or you know, that little, little phone you have in your hand. Now this is a psalm. Remember, it is poetic. And so before we kind of jump into this section, we need to remember that Hebrew poetry uses parallelism. We use rhyming in our poetry. But that's not what the Hebrews did. They would use parallelism, where they kind of say the same thing a bunch of different ways, using synonyms. Um, and, and, and we see that here. Uh, David kind of uses the same structure a bunch of different times, using some different words, but uh, really kind of painting a big picture through this parallelism. And what we see here are, uh, to begin with, different names for special revelation, different names for scriptures. Now, the first one we see is God's law. God's law in verse 7. <clears throat> this refers to his uh, moral commands and will. Right, the law of God reveals his moral commands and will. We read uh, one of God's commands this morning, Romans 12, 17. Well, that reveals to us God's holy character and what we are to do, what his will is for us. We see David uh, use the term, the testimony of the Lord. This uh, is that which bears witness to God and his works. We see God's precepts, the, the precepts of the Lord. These are the instructions in the way that we should go. God's commandment. These are his specific and clear rules for human life and worship. In verse 9, we see the fear of the Lord. And this is kind of interesting because we hear fear and we think emotion. Uh, but that's not what David means. This is really reverent worship of God, which we cannot know how to do in a way that pleases God, apart from what he's told us in Scripture. We cannot know how to fear God and worship him rightly apart from Scripture. And finally, God's rules in verse 9. Maybe more literally, we, we could say his judgments about what is good and, and bad, what is right and wrong. And we see all, all these together give us a great picture of what's contained in Scripture. Now, of course, there's more in Scripture than this, right? We have stories in Scripture. We have Proverbs, all kinds of different things, right? But God's revelation to us is not less than his law. It's not less than his testimony. It's not less than his precepts and so forth. So the focus of these verses here is Scripture, God's special revelation. And we can draw out of these verses information about Scripture's attributes and God's revelation in Scripture and, and Scripture's effect in us as the Holy Spirit uses Scripture in our lives. Let's look first at, at the eight attributes of Scripture that we find here. Let's walk through them one by one. In verse 7, uh, Scripture is described as perfect. Perfect. It's complete. It's not missing anything. It contains all that is necessary for life and godliness. Now, this doesn't mean that Scripture speaks to every single thing with the same amount of detail. Right? The Scripture doesn't tell you how to unclog your sink, right? But there is nothing that Scripture doesn't address either explicitly or implicitly. For example, Scripture... Uh, certainly does tell you the kind of heart you should have as you're dealing with that frustrating sink, right? Scripture is perfect. It, it contains all we need. Scripture is true. It is sure. It's trustworthy, stable, and unchanging. It's reliable. It's, un, uh, it's in, infallible. It is sure, meaning that it contains no errors, but is right in all that it contains, and therefore we can stand upon it. Scripture in verse 8 is described as right. 
It is right. It is honest and sincere. It points out the way to go. It is a, a map that you can rely on. Scripture is described as pure in verse 8. It's, it's, it's without corruption. It's without confusion. Now there's confusion sometimes when we read it, but that's not on Scripture's end. That's on our end. There's no ulterior motives or conspiracies behind the writing and content of Scripture, but all of Scripture, all of God's Word is without blemish and serves only God's pure and holy purpose. Scripture is clean, verse 9. It, it is morally pure in what it teaches us, but it's also clean in the sense of holiness, genuineness, what is pleasing to God. It, it teaches us these things. It teaches us the, the, the right way to worship God, both in the, in the actions that we do and in the heart that we should have when we do them. Scripture is described as righteous altogether. Morally righteous, leading to what is morally good. All of God's commands in Scripture promote righteousness, not wickedness. They promote what is good, not what is bad. Look down to verse 10. We see that Scripture is desirable. Desirable. That it's something we should value and desire. It's something inherently enjoyable that we should be drawn to. And again, we don't always enjoy reading the Bible. Sometimes it's harder on some days than others. But again, that's not an issue with Scripture. That's an issue with, with us. And finally, Scripture is described as sweet. Sweet. Sweeter even than honey. More, more desirable than gold. Sweeter than honey. Something that should delight us. That, that experientially has been given to us for our joy in Christ. Something for us to relish and enjoy. Whether that be something encouraging and uplifting we read in Scripture or something that we read that might be convicting. Yet there is sweetness in both. And this is how David describes the qualities and attributes of Scripture. That's an incredible description. True, right, clean, trustworthy, desirable, sweet, pure. There is nothing else that can claim all of these attributes. There's no other place that God has revealed truth that can be described like this. And only something that comes to us preserved and inspired by God can claim all these qualities. Because God's word actually reflects God's character. Right? We could say all these things about God. He is perfect. He is sure. He is right. He is pure. Right? He is clean. He is uh, sweet. He is desirable. We could say all these same things about God that we say about Scripture. And so Scripture, as special revelation, is unique in its qualities. We, we can't say these kinds of things about general revelation. We can say they're, they're amazing, they're helpful, they're good, but we can't say these things about that kind of... It's, it's different. They're just two different kinds of revelation. And, and just as God is the living God, Scripture is a living book. It's a living book. And sure, in one sense, it's words on a page, right? It's a physical thing we can hold in our hand. It's not like it's you know, a magic book. That's not what we're talking about. God has given special revelation through Scripture and has chosen to use Scripture in the lives of His people in a unique, dynamic, and transformative way by His Spirit's work and power. God has chosen to use Scripture in a unique and transformative way in your life. That's why this is a living book. 
And, and look at what Scripture is said to do. Again, we'll just go down these verses again. Verse 7, Scripture revives the soul. It revives the soul. It, it, it literally turns back the soul, either from death to life, in regeneration, in, in being born again, which is the result of the gospel being preached, which comes from the Word. Or it's turning back the soul from sin through sanctification. God, through the Holy Spirit's work, uses Scripture to bring life to your soul. He revives your soul. Again, verse 7, Scripture makes wise the simple. It makes wise the simple. <clears throat> Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. and The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do we learn to fear the Lord? How do we learn to fear the Lord? How do we know Him? It's only through Scripture, which God uses to make us wise. And Scripture certainly teaches us, right? We learn facts, we learn information, we learn what God's will is for us through His Word. But there's also this effect that Scripture has that we may not even be cognitively aware of. As He uses His Word to shape us and mold us and make us more like Christ, He grows us in wisdom. And you may look back 10 years and say, wow, I, I, I am a little bit more biblically wise now than I was 10 years ago. You may not have perceived that happening, but you can see the incremental differences there. Now, apart from Scripture, there is no consistently true wisdom. A scripture rejoices our heart, verse 8. The Holy Spirit uses Scripture to bring joy to our hearts as we are reminded of God's promises, His character, the work of Christ for us. And the Holy Spirit's able to bring us true joy through what Scripture says, even when we may not have any joy in ourselves. We may find it hard to have that emotion in our hearts. And really, it's more than an emotion, but the Holy Spirit is able to use Scripture to bring us that quiet confidence in God. And really, true Christian joy is inseparable from Scripture. You don't get one without the other. We look down to verse 8 again. Scripture enlightens our eyes. In ancient Hebrew, this expression, uh, to, to light up the eyes, usually refers to being alive. And maybe David means this in a spiritual way, how, how we are made alive through the Word of God. It could be as well that David is saying that through Scripture, God gives us spiritual illumination and understanding and the knowledge of Christ. And perhaps you've experienced this. I, I certainly hope you have. The more you read Scripture, the more you see the world through a biblical lens. You can think about how you understood the world around you before you became a Christian and then afterwards. And it is really like having a veil lifted from your eyes, isn't it? And that happens through the Scripture's use of the Word of God. And we look down to verse, uh, verse 10, excuse me, verse 11. We see that Scripture warns us. Scripture also warns the servants of God according to David here. Uh, scripture tells us of the destructive effect of sin. Right? We, we may know there's something wrong with us apart from Scripture. We may know, oh, I just can't stop doing this thing, and I know it's wrong because my conscience tells me, but Scripture actually tells us this is sin, this is breaking God's command, and this is what's going to happen if you keep doing that. Scripture warns us in clear detail about the destructive effect of sin. Scripture says, don't cross this line. It will not bring you any good. This is the way to go instead. This is the path of righteousness. And we see that in the end of verse 11, that it... Uh, brings us reward regarding obedience. How do we know what a life that is pleasing to God, a life that will be blessed according to uh, 
God's will. How do we know what that looks like? It's through Scripture. It's through Scripture. When we are obeying God and keeping His commands, there is blessing that comes with that. We're not saved by doing that, but there is blessing that comes with that. So again, we, we, we see a unique and preeminent function for special revelation. General revelation doesn't do these things, but special revelation does. God has chosen Scripture and given Scripture to us that these things might be accomplished in your life and in your heart and in your, your person. God doesn't use other means to do this. He uses His Word. And so this raises a question as we consider really these amazing things and this amazing priority and value of Scripture. How often are you exposed to Scripture? How much do you take in the Word of God? If you don't read your Bible, you will not grow as a Christian. These things won't be happening in your life. If Sunday morning is the only time that you hear Scripture or read Scripture, um, you are, you're spiritually malnourished. When, it, when a child doesn't receive the nutrients it needs, it doesn't grow. And there's been many cases of, of children who were neglected, for example, and not fed, and they're eight years old and they weigh 40 pounds, right? That child hasn't grown because they are only eating every so often. If you're not taking in Scripture, the Word of God, you will not grow as a Christian. If you're not hearing the Bible preached regularly, you will not grow as a Christian. If you uh, do not hear the Bible read out loud publicly, you will not grow as a Christian. If you're not taking in what God says in His Word, you will not grow as a Christian. Why? Because it is through Scripture that God by His Spirit is pleased to do these things we just read. Do you want to grow in Christian wisdom? Do you want to live a life honoring to the Lord? Do you want to have true Christian joy? Do you want to know how to worship God? then you must devote yourself to taking in Scripture. And I'm, I'm not saying here that you just read the Bible and then all these things magically happen in your life. That's not what I'm saying. But when you are committed and sincere in coming to God's Word, hoping to learn from Him and hear from Him, He will work in you. He's not going to say, you know what, you're reading that Bible, but I, I'm just not feeling like doing anything in your life today you know, or in your heart. You come to the Bible and say, God, would you change me? Would you grow me? Would you help me? It's not going to say no to that. This is a promise. This is a promise of what he'll use his word to do. So come to scripture in faith. Be devoted to scripture uh, that by faith God will do these things in you. Because there is an undeniable link between your exposure and, and intake and commitment to scripture as God's word and your growth as a Christian. Again, they are linked together. Again, I'm not saying that just cracking open your Bible is going to make you a mature Christian right away. There's many people who study the Bible and completely miss what it says. There's many people with great biblical knowledge and very little spiritual maturity, and may we never be that way. We don't come to the Bible just to know things. We come to the Bible to know God, and to be conformed to the image of His Son. God has chosen to use Scripture in a unique way in the life of His covenant people, and He will not grow you in godliness and in your relationship with Him apart from Scripture. And David speaks of the value of Scripture here, doesn't he? More valuable than gold, sweeter than honey. Is God's Word that valuable to you? Do you see Scripture 
is that precious? And is that reflected by how often you read it or meditate on it? I want to ask some difficult questions here. Do, do you value Scripture this way? Or would your life suggest that maybe television or Netflix is more valuable than Scripture? Um, that your video games are more valuable than Scripture? That your work is more valuable than Scripture? That your hobbies are more valuable than Scripture, that other books are more valuable than Scripture. Where does your time go? Where are your thoughts at? And we're, you know, we don't want to be unrealistic here, right? There are things we have to do where we can't be reading the Bible. That's, that's okay, right? That's, that's part of life. There are things where we have to be thinking about whatever's in front of us, and we can't be thinking about what we read that morning necessarily, right? So we're not, not trying to be unrealistic or pharisaical here, but simply asking the question, what do you treasure? Do you treasure Scripture? Or do you treasure other things you find more enjoyable? What's more valuable to you? Because we have an incredible treasure in the written word of God. And we really must ask, what is my response to it? And we see David's response in verses 12 through 14. Let's look there. David's response to Revelation. Once again, there's a, a transition in this psalm. The focus shifts from the nature of Scripture to David speaking in the first person, speaking of himself. And it's very interesting that in, in, in verse 12, the first place David goes is to his own needs. He, he speaks of the impossibility of discerning one's own errors, uh, the, the, this problem of hidden faults. You see, David, in, in reflecting on God's revelation, realizes something. David himself cannot be the source of his own revelation and authority. David can't look to David to know about God and to know about himself. Why? Well, think about it, right? So many people say, follow your heart, right? If it feels true, it is true. That's kind of the mantra of the modern age. But David points out something here. Your heart can't be your source of trusted information, of revelation or authority, because you can't even discern your own errors. You can't even see the areas where you're sinful. Some of them you can, but certainly not all of them. Right? We all have these major blind spots in our life where we don't see our, 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 our you know, sinfulness in this area or our weakness here. We don't see our predispositions here because we've lived with that sin or that issue for so long that we don't even perceive it. So how can we look to ourselves as trustworthy sources of revelation and authority when we don't even know ourselves? That's the problem. You can't see your errors, your hidden sins, but David rightly assumes that they're there. You have them. I have them. And so in, instead, what does David do? Well, he acknowledges in light of what God's revelation says about him and his sinfulness, he needs God to reveal his hidden sins and errors to him, which is what happens as the Spirit uses the Word to convict us. So David appeals to revelation here, and he, he, he also appeals to God's promises made known again in Scripture as he asks God to declare him innocent from hidden faults. Because that's what God's word says God will do. And, and, and because of what scripture says, David knows he's laid bare before God. He's judged by the law of God. Uh, David realizes that he needs the God of scripture to reveal and forgive his sin. This is the need that all of us have. Again, we learn this from special revelation from God's word. David goes beyond this, though, in verse 13, as he asks God to keep him back from presumptuous sins. Verse 12, we're dealing with hidden sins, but in verse 13, 
Uh, David needs help dealing with purposeful, intentional, premeditated sin. Those purposeful acts of rebellion against God, which again is revealed to be sin through the testimony of the conscience, but more clearly in Scripture. Again, presumptuous sin is that sin which violates God's law. And David's response to God's holiness in God's law is to request God's help in walking in righteousness before him. God's revelation causes David to acknowledge God's holiness and to request God's help. That's his response here. He asks God to keep his sin from having dominion over him, that he might be blameless and innocent of great transgression. He says, intervene in my life, Lord. You know, all this makes sense only in the context of Scripture. Because David's measuring himself against God's law. David reads God's commands. He knows his own sinfulness. And he reads of God's help for sinners, all of which is in Scripture. As we finally look at verse 14, we see that David now really frames his entire life in response to Revelation. He, he, he frames his entire being in light of what Scripture says. He, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. He goes deeper than mere action, doesn't he? He says, Lord, just all that I am, even in those places that nobody else can see or hear or know, let that be pleasing to you. I'm laying this bare before you, my rock and my redeemer. How does David know what's pleasing to God? Through Scripture. Through Scripture. How does David know that God is his rock and his redeemer? Through Scripture. It really all comes back to David or to God's revelation. The question is, what is your response to God's revelation in Scripture? Do you try to hide from it? Do you neglect it? Do you love it and submit yourself to it? Really what we see David doing in response to Scripture is drawing near to God. That's what David's doing. He's drawing near to God. He's reading about God's holiness, his own character. And this causes him to approach God with requests, needing help. He is drawn near to God. Does Scripture have that same effect for you? Does it draw you near to God? All people are exposed to general revelation, but it is Scripture, it is special revelation that receives the chief place in this psalm. It's Scripture that makes God clearly known to us. It is Scripture that tells us who we really are. It is Scripture that tells us of Christ's perfect righteousness, his death for sinners, his resurrection on the third day, that by faith, you and I might have a reconciled relationship to God. That's through Scripture. It's through Scripture alone that is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture alone. So brothers and sisters, treasure God's revelation both as you are in His creation, let that draw your heart to worship Him, and even more so as you read His Word. Draw near to His Word that you might draw near to Him, that He might transform you for His own glory. Let's pray. Our Lord, what a treasure You have given us in Your Word. How clearly You have 
revealed your power, your might as our creator and the things you have made. Lord, truly we are surrounded by information about who you are. We are surrounded by revelation. Father, we pray that you would help us not to take Scripture for granted. Lord, some of us even have multiple copies of Scripture, and yet there are places in this world where to find one book of the Bible is an occasion for great joy. Father, would you help us not to be complacent with the access that we have to your word, but may we see that as a great opportunity to drink deeply of it, that we might grow in our knowledge of you, in our fellowship with you, in our likeness to your Son. Lord, help us to value Scripture as David values Scripture, that we would see it as sweeter than honey, more desirable than gold, and that that would drive us to the Word, that you would increase our love for what you've revealed there, that you would increase our love for you. Father, we thank you for such a trustworthy source of authority and revelation. Thank you for your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.